The following message is brought to you by New Song Church and Pastor Joshua Blunt in Oklahoma City, Oklahoma. For more information on New Song, visit us online at newsongpeople.com. room is full. Very full. Full of his presence. Oh man. So good. So good. We worship so good this morning. Preston touched the heart of our father. I know his heart was touched. Thank you for worshiping with us. Thank you for being here. Let me remind you we do have a Saturday night service. Four o'clock. It's awesome. It was awesome last night. Just saying. Okay. Um, we're starting a new series. Uh, my name's Sarah. For those of you who don't know me, my husband Josh and I are the pastors here at New Song. We'd love to meet you. If we haven't yet, come by the lobby, say hello to us after the service is over. Um, but before we get into the message, I have a quick announcement, an exciting announcement. If you've been around the last couple of months, you've heard us talking about a brand new ministry launching called Rise Like a Mother. And this is a ministry, yes! <laughs> this ministry is um, for new mamas in the church. We are partnering older sisters within the church body with new moms. Mom in that first year of baby's life where you need somebody to just be the hands of Jesus. It's a very practical, very service needs ministry where you can come and hold a little baby and sing and rock and pray over a little baby while a mom gets a reprieve where she can go read her Bible or she can go take a shower or she can take a nap and she knows that you're there in her home loving on her baby. It's going to be so powerful. We've had so many people interested in this. This is like a very prototype ministry. I don't know if there's anything that exists like this in other churches across the country. So we're super excited to launch it here first. Um, and so if you are a new mama, we are ready to go. We have Deborah's. It's called, they're called Deborah's because the whole ministry is based on how Deborah rose like a mother for the children of Israel in the book of Judges. And so we have Deborah's trained and standing by and they are ready to come and love on your baby. So if you're a new mama and you're like, yes, please, reprieve sounds amazing and you're a member of this church or you're on your way to becoming a member of the church, then we wanna invite you to go ahead and uh, fill out the application at newsongpeople.com slash rise. And if you're an older sister in the church and you're like, I wanna hold a baby, then go to newsongpeople.com slash rise and you can fill out the application and find out more about how you can be trained to be a Deborah. It's gonna be so good. All right, we're kicking off a new series this weekend called Stronger. Somebody say Stronger. This must be stronger than that. And we're going to be in this series for seven weeks. And um, tonight or today, I'm going to be laying the groundwork for this series. So I want to give you the stronger cliff notes right off the bat. You saw it on the video. Maybe you saw it on Instagram. But let me just give you like the synopsis, the cliff notes of the series so you know where we're going. Here it is. God is calling his people to resist the division, impotency, and compromise rampant within the Western church via faithful discipleship. Those who will rise to the occasion and live with devotion and conviction no matter the cost. Join us this fall as we purpose to reclaim Jesus's vision for his church. It's his church. And this is where we're going over the next seven weeks. It's going to be so good. Now, this idea of this must be stronger than that is one that is very near and dear to my heart. 
It's part of my story that will always be like a sacred part of my story when I encountered this idea of this must be stronger than that. It was on the very first day of my very first, our very first sabbatical in November of 2020. And a sabbatical is where Josh and I step away from all things New Song. We disconnect completely from the church, from social media, from all media. We pretty much disconnect from everything except for God, each other, and our children for four weeks. Now, this is our very first sabbatical. And uh, we were supposed to do it in July, but the timeline for moving into this building got pushed back. We didn't want to miss the grand opening of this facility, so we pushed it back to November. So it happens that the very first day of my very first sabbatical falls on election day of 2020. (laughs) Great day. Um, I went down to my polling place to vote, and my jaw dropped because the line was five miles long. And I was so tempted to get back in my car and be like, you know what, I'm pretty sure my vote really doesn't matter that much. Just going to keep driving. Um, But then I remembered, like, women used to not be able to vote. And, like, this is a big deal. And and they'd be rolling in their graves if they knew that this long line was keeping me from voting. So I parked the car. I get out. And I'm trying to be super optimistic. Like, this line's going to probably move pretty fast, I bet. It'll go quick. It didn't. 20 minutes in, I'm like, I'm going to be here a full four hours. And I was. I was there a full four hours. Now, I just taken social media off my phone because sabbatical, and you have to understand something about me. If I feel like I'm supposed to do this and I do it, I'm not going to make an exception. Probably a freedom issue there, but whatever. I'm like, no, no social media. Can't do social media. Don't have email on my phone. Can't work on work stuff. Didn't bring a book because wasn't expecting it to take four hours. So I'm like, what am I going to do for four hours? So I have this idea. I'm going to download the Kindle app to my phone, and then I'll just get a book, and here we go. So I decided to get a book, and um, I'd never heard of this author before, but it was recommended to me based on my last read, and it was called Beautiful Resistance, The Joy of Conviction in a Culture of Compromise by John Tyson. And within five minutes of reading through this introduction, I am introduced to this idea of this must be stronger than that. I am introduced to Dietrich Bonhoeffer. And within five minutes of reading the introduction, I'm like, okay, I got to go to Amazon. I got to get this man's biography, pastor, martyr, prophet, spy. Who is this? Why have I never heard of him before? And the book comes in the mail a couple days later, and it's huge. When I got it, I was like, I'm, I'm never going to be able to read this book. I've never read a book like this before. But then I got COVID on sabbatical, and it was like, well, can't go anywhere for 10 days, so let's dig in. Let's read this book. And I'm telling you, it fanned something in me into flame, something that is still shaping my walk with Christ, something that is still burning, something that is shaping my devotion, something that is to this day shaping this house. Now, if you don't know Bonhoeffer, let me give you a brief history. Prepare for your mind to be blown, okay? Bonhoeffer was a, G, uh, a German theologian. He was a Lutheran pastor. That's him right there. And uh, he was a pastor at a time in Germany when Nazi power was on the rise. Now, in 1933, there were a lot of people who were very concerned about the compromise that the German evangelical church was making within this Nazi movement. And you'll be able to see why they were concerned. This is a picture of a German church. Look at the Nazi flags. They've got the cross there with the Nazi symbol in the middle. The church 
was yielding to, the church was cooperating with the Reich. The church was handing over loyalties that belonged to Christ and Christ alone. They were handing those loyalties over to the Fuhrer, over to Hitler. Now, Hitler, you have to understand, he did not want to just rule Germany politically or rule the world politically. He wanted to control the hearts and the souls of its citizens. Now, something I didn't really understand until I read Bonhoeffer's biography was like the struggle that the church faced and, and, and the pressure that the pastors and leaders in Germany were under during this time. This was as much as of a uh, religious battle as it was a political struggle. This was a religious battle that would lead to one of the darkest moments in the history of the church, and it would lead to the extermination of more than six million Jews. Now, many Germans sat by while the Nazi-supported groups gained control of the German evangelical church. They began to do things like exclude all non-Aryan clergy. So if you weren't non-Aryan, you couldn't be a pastor, preacher, teacher. They removed the Old Testament from the Bible because the whole Jewish ancestry thing didn't really go great with their Nazified version of Christianity. But in 1934, the confessing church was born. Now, this confessing church was a group of pastors and leaders that decided to step away, to pull away from the German evangelical church. And uh, they had this document that was produced, and it stated that those that were a part of the confessing church were to be loyal to Christ alone, and they would not be an organ of the state. You can see these members of the, the confessing church, a few of them here. Bonhoeffer's there on the second row on the right. Now, he signed this declaration that he would be only loyal to Christ. Bonhoeffer had witnessed firsthand like the weakness of many German pastors and leaders and church attenders, um, their unwillingness to resist the regime. And it spurred him to action. He could have easily just like sat back and criticized and be like, you wimps, like step up, do something. But he didn't. He was spurred to action. He knew what would really help was not just criticizing these people, but stronger training. He realized that the clergy, that people needed stronger training. So in 1935, he created this underground seminary. And here was his vision for the seminary. Intentional Christian community committed to living the ethic of Jesus found in the Sermon on the Mount. And a patron saint, a woman, she opened up her house, this beautiful house in the small town of Finkenwald. And the training began. This is Finkenwald. This is where the seminary took place. Now, in Finkenwald, life was built on a vision of a new kind of disciple, a new kind of disciple, because what he was seeing wasn't cutting it, a new kind of disciple, one that was characterized by fidelity to Christ, no matter the cost, one that was characterized by people who were practicing the way of Jesus, one that was characterized by people who believed in Christ's millennial reign, not that of the Reich. Now, these students at Finkenwald, their fidelity, or fidelity would be tested by the Gestapo, almost two dozen or more than two dozen of them were arrested when the seminary was shut down. Now, when Bonhoeffer's friends started to read the sermons that he was preaching and they started to hear how radical he was, they started to hear about the intensity and the intentionality that was taking place at Finkenwald, they began to ask questions. Like, Bonhoeffer, you sure you know what you're doing? Is this really necessary? Is this too radical? Is this too extreme? One of his friends was suspicious of too much spiritualism. This looks a little fishy. 
too much spiritualism. So Bonhoeffer takes his sus friend out. I said that last night and the teenager's like, no, Pastor Sarah, no. They take, he takes the suspicious friend out on a little row, rowing trip. They're in their rowboats, and when they reach the shore of this destination, Bonhoeffer takes this suspicious friend that's suspicious of too much spirituality. He takes him to this small hill. They go up it to this clearing, and he points out to a, a German airstrip. He points out to where uh, the runways of nearby German fighter planes are coming and going, and all these little German soldiers are moving around like ants, and he says to this suspicious friend, he's like, you see that over there? There is a new generation of Germans that are in training. They're training disciples over there for a new kind of kingdom, a kingdom that's built on cruelty and hatred and darkness and hardness. And he said to his friend, it's gonna be necessary to present a superior discipline if the Nazis are to be, are to be defeated. He said to him, this, what we're doing has to be stronger than that. This has to be stronger than that. You have to be stronger than these tormentors that you find everywhere today. This was his conviction that what he was doing at Finkenwald had to be stronger than what Hitler was doing over there on that airstrip. This time, this time called for a beautiful resistance. The same is true today. It's calling for a beautiful resistance. This, what we're doing here in the church, the body of Christ, our own personal walks with God, what we're doing in our homes has to be stronger than that. Bonhoeffer's seminary was small. Its season was short. It closed in 1937. It was only around for two years. John Tyson writes, in many ways, it was a feeble joke compared with the power of the Third Reich, but it was a prophetic seed of a faithful church. And over time, just as Jesus promised, that small seed grew and it bore fruit. And today the Reich is a shameful memory. Hitler is in the grave and the German church is repentant. But the fruit of Finkenwald, the community, the vision and the work has gone on to shape a vision of Christian discipleship that has inspired millions. It's inspired me. Like, I am one of those millions. And it's gone on to shape this church 85 years later here in Edmond, Oklahoma. It's inspired me. Bonhoeffer was right. This must be stronger than that. Now, while Hitler and the Third Reich are not breathing down our neck, saying compromise or die, how many know there's a lot of spiritual forces that are at work in the world that are doing a number on the church at large? We have pressure from the news media. We have pressure from influencers, from Hollywood, from everywhere. Don't be on the wrong side of history. You don't want to be on the wrong side of history when it comes to the issue of abortion, do you? You don't want to be on the wrong side of history when it comes to the LGBTQ plus blah, blah, blah movement. You don't want to be on the wrong side of history, right? So compromise. The political divisiveness, the political polarization the mind-boggling, the mind-numbing advances in technology. I think that's a huge force that's at work on the church at large. We're so distracted. Our devotion is pathetic. We spend more time on our cell phones than we do at the feet of Jesus. We live in a society that doesn't want to offend or marginalize anyone except for those silly ancient Christians and their silly ancient religion. We live in an agree with me or you're dead to me world. We live 
in a world where the spirit of the Antichrist is on the move. We find ourselves in an age where we're, if we do not affirm someone's life choices, we're labeled as an oppressor. Even if we love this person and care for them dearly and invite them into our homes and share Jesus with them, if we don't affirm their life choice, then we're an oppressor. I'm sure that Bonhoeffer was labeled an oppressor by many in the German church when he didn't affirm their Nazified version of Christianity, when he was loyal to Christ over country. There's so much darkness and confusion happening in our time. In this day and age, what do we do about it? Do we just yield? Do we cooperate with the powers that, are at, at, that we see in operation? Do we sit by while many are trying to uh, politicize our faith? Like turning our faith into like this politicized thing? It's so ugly. Do we look away as famous pastors and leaders are caught up in scandal? After scandal, do we watch as millions of young people deconstruct and leave the church every year while millions are walking away from their faith? What do we do? Is it possible in our time to build something like Finkenwald? Though it may seem small compared to the dark movements that are at work in the world, is it possible to build something like Finkenwald that generations to come will look back on and they'll see our faithfulness in a generation of compromise? I believe that it is. If I didn't, we wouldn't keep showing up here and doing this week in and week out. I wouldn't keep praying, God, your kingdom come and your will be done in Edmond, in Oklahoma, in our country. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. I believe that there's people in this room today that carry that same Bonhoeffer fire who are willing to fight for the truth, for what's right. People who will look to the world outside of our window and say this. This has to be stronger than that. The presence of God has to be stronger than the programs of men. Transformational discipleship has to be stronger than cultural formation. Kingdom community has to be stronger than division, hatred, fear. Missional sacrifice has to be stronger than compromise and convenience. This must be stronger than that. Over the next seven weeks, we're going to talk about how worship must be stronger than idolatry. Others must be stronger than self. Love must be stronger than fear. Generosity stronger than comfort. Rest must be stronger than exhaustion. The secret place must be stronger than the public place. And tonight, we're going to be talking about how, or today, today, we're going to be talking about how conviction must be stronger than compromise. Somebody say, let's go. Let's go. Lord, we thank you for this day. Gathered here today, the body of Christ. We're so thankful, God, that you're here with us. We know you want to speak. We say, Holy Spirit, you are welcome here. We ask you to expose areas of compromise in our lives. Encourage us. Convict us. We're here, Lord, to do business with you. We want to leave here changed. So come and have your way. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. All right, get out your Being Transformed journals if you have them. If you don't have a journal, I want to encourage you to pick one up. They're free, and this is a great resource that, that, that we have here at New Song where we are uh, committed to help you practicing disciplines like daily abiding in God's Word, like prayer and transformational community. So pick one up as you leave. Turn to Hebrews chapter 11. 
Hebrews chapter 11. Now of all the books that we've read together as a church family this year, Hebrews has been my favorite. Like Hebrews left me in awe every single day, not enough space in my journal to write what the Lord was stirring in my heart. And if you remember, the book of Hebrews was written to a, a group of Christian Jews like a second generation Christian Jews who were considering returning to Judaism. Like, ah, the new covenant is great, but the old covenant, like the animal sacrifices, the high priest, the temple, this is what we know, this is what we're used to. They were considering leaving Christianity to return to Judaism because for them, following Jesus seemed to dismiss their heritage. It seemed to dismiss their rituals, their very way of life, that Jesus came to fulfill the law and the prophets, that he destroyed sin, he conquered sin, destroyed all barriers, that he freely provided eternal life, that all we have to do is believe in him by grace through faith. Like it doesn't matter our DNA, our if, if, we're, if, if Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are in our family tree, that was hard for them to swallow. So they were either trying to live a hybrid faith, like a little bit of Christianity and a little bit of Judaism, or they were considering abandoning Christianity altogether and just going back to the old way because Judaism was comfortable, Judaism was familiar, Christianity was uncomfortable, and Christianity was unpopular. The, the, the writer of Hebrews is writing to them in a time where Christianity was the cause of fierce persecution. You'd be persecuted both socially and physically and from both sides, from the Jews and the Romans. So the people that he's writing or she, the author's unknown, the, the author is writing to a, a people who are catching heat from both sides for being Christians. The writer of Hebrews knows that conviction must be stronger than compromise. So he or she is, is writing to strengthen their conviction in the supremacy of Christ and the new covenant to remind them that they are not a people who will shrink back. They are not a people who will compromise. I know I told you Hebrews 11, but look at Hebrews 10 first, verses 32 through 39. The writer writes, remember those earlier days after you had received the light, Jesus, the new covenant, when you endured in a great conflict full of suffering, sometimes you were publicly exposed to insult and persecution and other times you stood side by side with those who were so treated. You suffered along with those in prison and joyfully accepted the confiscation of your property because you knew you were convinced. This was your conviction. You knew that you yourselves had better and lasting possessions. So do not throw away your confidence. Do not throw away your conviction. It will be richly rewarded. You need to persevere so that when you have done the will of God, you will receive what he has promised. For, here's what he's promised. In just a little while, he who is coming will come and will not delay. And he said, my righteous one will live by faith and I take no pleasure in the one who shrinks back. Now remember who the audience is. The audience is those who are tempted to go back to what's easy, to go back to what's familiar, to go back to what they know. And here's what he says, but we do not belong to those who shrink back and are destroyed, but to those who have faith and are saved. I love this text. I love it. To me, it reads like a great wartime speech. Like this sounds like something that Winston Churchill or FDR would say. Like only it's better. It's so much better than the only thing we have to fear is fear itself. When I hear it, I read it like, like I, I, or when I read it, I hear it like coming out of like a scratchy muddled microphone. Like we do not belong <laughs> to those 
who shrink back. And everybody's getting so excited and going and fighting and winning the war. So he gives this great speech and then he drives the, home, or he drives the point home even further by listing out examples of Jewish people from the days of old that did not shrink back. He's like, remember your heritage. He's like, there's some serious old fire there, guys, and you need to fan that fire into flame. So he starts listing out these people, by faith, Abel, by faith, Enoch, by faith, Abraham, by faith, Sarah, by faith, Noah. And tonight I wanna look at one of the by faith people listed in Hebrews 11, and that's Moses. Moses is someone who did not shrink back, but lived a life of conviction, conviction stronger than compromise. Hebrews 11, verses 24 through 27. It says, it was by faith that Moses, when he grew up, refused to be called the son of the Pharaoh's daughter. He chose to share the oppression of God's people instead of enjoying the fleeting pleasures of sin. He thought it was better to suffer for the sake of Christ than to own the treasures of Egypt. For he was looking ahead to his great reward. Somebody say great reward. It was by faith that Moses left the land of Egypt, not fearing the king's anger. He kept right on going because he kept his eyes on the one who is invisible. Conviction must be stronger than compromise. Moses was a man of conviction. And his conviction was this. His conviction was that God's great reward was better than anything that Egypt had to offer. So what was this great reward that he was so convicted of? The great reward was living a life that glorified God, that through his life, God would be lifted high. And do you know what happens when God is lifted high? Men are drawn to him. That was his great reward. Communion with God himself was his great reward. Living a life that he could prove that God's will is good and pleasing and acceptable, that was his great reward reward. Riches in Christ Jesus. He was looking ahead to faith's great reward, the riches available to us through Christ Jesus. Eternal happiness in heaven, his great reward. His conviction was that suffering in the Messiah's camp was greater than living a compromised life in the palace. His conviction was, I don't want anyone else and I don't need anything else, but the invisible one God is my one thing. His conviction was you can have all of this world. You can have Egypt. You can have all of Egypt, all the treasures of Egypt. I'll take God. I'll take God himself. I love how verse 26 reads in the Passion Translation. It says, Moses, his eyes looked with wonder, not on the immediate, but on the ultimate. Faith's great reward. Faith's great reward. His conviction was ultimate must be stronger than immediate. You should write these down. Ultimate must be stronger than immediate. Holy anticipation must be stronger than cheap gratification. Holy anticipation of that great reward must be stronger than cheap gratification. Wonder and faith's great reward must be stronger than glitter of temporary gains gained through compromise. We're gonna examine two areas of compromise today because I believe that these two areas 
are still things that plague the church today. We're talking about how this must be stronger than that, right? Moses refused to compromise for status, and he refused to compromise for fleeting pleasure. Let's talk about status. Moses refused to compromise for status. Scripture says it was by faith that Moses, when he grew up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. You're familiar with the story of Moses. You've either seen the Prince of Egypt or you've seen the Ten Commandments. Josh makes us watch the Ten Commandments every Easter. We're familiar with the story of Moses. He was born to Hebrew slaves in a time where a very paranoid and a very fearful Pharaoh was uh, in power. And he began to grow uh, fearful of the way that the, the Hebrew people were growing in number. And he's like, if these guys wise up and realize like how strong they are and how great they are in number, they're gonna like revolt. They're gonna start a war and they're gonna beat us. And they're gonna pull away from the tyranny of Egypt and I'm gonna lose my entire workforce. So I gotta do something. So he can't stop them from being prolific and from multiplying. They're very fruitful. And so he decides that he's going to call for the murder of all Hebrew baby boys. He will take at the source. He will take the fruit and he will take the seed of the fruit. Moses' parents, however, did not shrink back. They did not compromise. They did not obey the command of Pharaoh. When Moses was born, they kept him hidden as long as possible. And when he was three months old, by faith, they're in Hebrews 11 too, not in fear, but by faith, they put their little three-month-old baby boy in a basket. This really happened in the Nile River and that basket floated right to the princess, right to the Pharaoh's daughter from slave to prince of Egypt. One of the most amazing scriptures or story in scripture. But as Moses grew up, scripture says, he refused to be called the prince of Egypt. He refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. And in doing so, he refused all that came with being a prince. He refused to compromise for status. He refused position, popularity, privilege, and power. He refused the title of prince and all that came with the title. He refused all of the perks that came with being a prince because in his mind, the perks, and there were some great perks, I imagine, with being the prince of Egypt. In his mind, those perks could not and would not compare to faith's great reward to living a life that honored God, that men would be drawn to God through his life, salvation of his nation. He's looking to that. He's looking to spiritual blessings. He's looking ahead to riches in Christ. He's looking to communion with God himself. None of the perks of being prince could compare with faith's great reward. Listen, if this is going to be stronger than that, then the body of Christ has to refuse to compromise for status. The church has to become unobsessed with popularity. We see churches and denominations compromising the truth, compromising the truth of God's word for likability. We see uh, big churches compromising the pulpit for popularity, bringing in whatever guest speaker that has 100 million followers on Twitter, not because you know and trust his character and you know that his secret place is stronger than the public place, but because having him in your pulpit is a status symbol. 
We're compromising the pulpit. You bring this guy in and then three months later, he's caught up in a scandal. You compromise your pulpit for popularity. Compromising the presence of God for position. Like wanting the largest church in the city, but wanting it for the wrong reasons. Seeing the people in your church as little trophies, as little stars. And the more trophies and the more stars that we can have in this church, then the more wonderful that makes me as a leader. Like that gives me some credibility. Instead of seeing those people as actual souls that God sent you to shepherd and to equip, we're compromising for status, for popularity. But it's not just the body of Christ as a whole, also the members that make up the body of Christ that are dealing with compromising for status. Individuals within the body compromising truth for acceptance. Like maybe you're one way at youth on Wednesdays, but you're another way at school during the week because being popular and being well-liked is awesome. No one's gonna deny that. Being popular is awesome. And you've realized that to be popular, you're gonna have to compromise some truth. Compromising truth for popularity. Compromising truth for a larger customer base. Maybe um, it looks like instead of um, refusing a promotion at work that you know is going to wreak havoc on your marriage and on your ability to be the primary uh, disciplers of your children, you take that promotion. Like the glitter of the immediate acquisition of power and position blinds you from seeing ahead to faith's great reward. You're blinded to what this is going to cost your family. You're blinded to what you're going to have to give up so that you can make more money and get that car and get that house and achieve that status. Hear me. Like Moses, you may float your way right into the heart of power, popularity, prestige, position. Some of it will be the favor of God, the providence of God, but some of it could be the bait of Satan. And you need the Holy Spirit to help you discern What's what? Amen. Amen? If conviction is going to be stronger than compromise, we have to look with wonder, not on the immediate, but on the ultimate. Holy anticipation must be stronger than cheap gratification. Wonder and great, faith's great reward must be stronger than the glitter of temporary gains attained through compromise. Listen, young people, if you are willing to compromise your faith, for popularity, a crown of popularity, to be crowned Mr. Popular, homecoming king, your position at the table, your position in the locker room. Let me just let you in on something. If you have to compromise your faith to get the popularity, to get that crown, that crown's gonna diminish in about four to six years. It's gonna be gone, it's gonna dwindle, it will disappear. We need to get our eyes off of the immediate. Anything that we gain by compromising our faith will dwindle, will shrivel, will disappear. Yes. Eyes off the immediate, eyes onto the ultimate. We need to look with wonder and anticipation to faith's great reward, to living a life that glorifies God and draws men to him, to having communion with him, to building something like Finkenwald in our time. That may seem small and insignificant right now, but people are talking about and being inspired by 85 years later. A question for everybody in this room is how important is status to you? How important is it to you? Your title at work, your position, that corner office, popularity, power, and are you compromising in any areas to attain that status? Are you willing to walk away from everything 
that being the prince of Egypt has to offer if you have to compromise your faith in order to get it? Here's another question for you. On a scale of one to 10, one being not convinced at all, 10 being super convinced and super convicted, how convinced are you in the awesomeness of faith's great reward? Have you thought about it lately? Has it crossed your mind lately? Are you convinced that there's nothing better than faith's great reward? We got to get convinced. We got to get to that place where we can say, you can have the title, you can have the popularity, you can have the position. I don't want it if it's going to cause me to compromise my faith. Number two, Moses refused to compromise for fleeting pleasure, for fleeting pleasure. It says, he chose to share the oppression of God's people instead of enjoying the fleeting pleasures of sin. Moses preferred suffering over the momentary enjoyment of sin's pleasure. And everybody said, amen. (laughs) He preferred suffering over the momentary enjoyment of sin's pleasure. I had this pastor that used to always say, this is going to shock you. Okay, what I'm about to say is not going to shock you, but I'm going to say it anyways. Sin has its moments. You know, we know, because we've all sinned. Sin has its moments. It's moments of pleasure, but those moments are momentary. The moments are momentary. The moments are fleeting. We know no high lasts forever. No low lasts forever. No orgasm lasts forever. No numb lasts forever. No hookup excitement lasts forever. No sin-induced pleasure lasts forever. Moses, a man of conviction, would not compromise for fleeting pleasure. He chose instead to share in the oppression of God's people. He chose to suffer. The church needs this level of disdain for sin. The church needs to be so convicted that we can say, I choose to suffer with Christ. I choose to suffer with Christ over sinning against God. But pleasure, pleasure is so much more appealing than suffering. Because suffering means you got to suffer. <laughs> and it seems like Christians have an aversion. This week, all, until this week, I thought it was adversion. I kept putting it in and being like, why spell? Come on, spell check. It's aversion, Okay. Christians have a serious aversion to suffering. We don't want to suffer. Like given the choice between momentary pleasure and momentary suffering, most people are going to go with momentary pleasure, but it's the wrong choice. It's the short-sighted choice. It's the cheap gratification over holy anticipation choice. I grew up in church, and at one point in my life, I was confused on this. And I don't, I don't, I don't know, I don't, I don't think it was ever preached this way, but it's just how I interpreted it. And I should have been reading my Bible so that this, this wouldn't have happened. But I, I believed that Christians never had to suffer. Like, I believe that suffering and Christianity don't mix. I believe that because I was a Christian, that I was just going to go from victory to victory. And my stance on suffering was, if you're suffering, it's because you're sinning. Like, if you're dealing with suffering, then there's sin in the camp. That's what I thought. I found myself wondering this week why so many, to th- or why so many 30 to like 45-year-old charismatic Christians have really intense pornography addictions. I found myself wondering if this 
has anything to do with the fact that many of them were taught a suffer-free gospel. And so instead of suffering by not giving into temptation, because if you're not gonna give into the temptation, there's gonna be some suffering that comes with it. But if Christianity and suffering don't mix, then I'm not gonna suffer through this temptation. I'm just gonna give into it. I wonder if the suffer-free gospel kept them from when they did mess up, going and confessing to a brother and sister in Christ, because that's humiliating. I don't want to have to suffer through that. I want, they're going to think less of me. I don't want to have to go through that humiliating process that leads to healing. So we take this less suffery route of sinning in secret. I don't have to suffer. My flesh doesn't have to suffer. I get what I want. I have the gratification of giving in in this moment. And as long as nobody knows, I get to keep faith. I get to keep showing up and doing the charismatic Christian thing. Like win-win. No. Lose. Lose. The less suffery route of sinning in secret is actually leading you down a path of destruction. You think you're avoiding suffering, but you're really just piling it up. The Lord put it to me like this this week. It's better to lean into daily moments of suffering with Christ by choosing ultimate faith's great reward over immediate than to stuff suffering in a closet until it's so full that it comes spilling out onto your life and the lives of those closest to you. If somebody taught you that suffering and Christianity don't mix, somebody taught you wrong. It's a place of compromise within the church. And I get why it's not talked about because teaching about suffering is not the message that you're going to get all the amens. It's not the message that, that's going to blow up on YouTube. But again, if we're preparing messages and sermon series based on what's going to blow up on YouTube, then we're doing it wrong. Then we're compromising for status. We need to normalize suffering because scripture says it's actually pretty amazing. In fact, Peter tells us to rejoice to the extent we partake of Christ's sufferings. 1 Peter 4, 12 through 13 says, Beloved, do not think it strange concerning the fiery trial, which is to try you as though some strange thing is happening to you. We got to normalize it. That's some, oh my, what's happening? This is so weird. This is so strange. We need to normalize it. It says, but rejoice to the extent that you partake of Christ's sufferings, that when his glory is revealed, you may also be glad with exceeding joy. 2 Corinthians 4, 17 through 18 says, For our momentary light distress, this passing trouble is producing. What's it producing? This is so good. It's producing for us an eternal weight of glory, a fullness beyond all measure, surpassing all comparisons, a transcendent splendor, and an endless blessedness. So we look not at the things which are seen, the immediate, but at the things which are unseen, the ultimate. For the things which are visible and temporal, just brief and fleeting, but the things which are invisible and everla are everlasting and imperishable. Write this down. Momentary sinful pleasure leads to shame, emptiness, darkness, and destruction. Again, just like first service, nobody's writing it down. Okay. Momentary suffering leads to the weight of glory beyond all measure transcendent splendor and endless blessedness. So you see why momentary suffering or momentary sinful pleasure is the wrong choice. 
Like if I were to just present you these options, like originally it was like momentary pleasure or momentary suffering. It's like, yeah, momentary pleasure. But if I present it to you like destruction, shame, all of this darkness death. or death, yep. Or, or, or do you want the, the weight of glory beyond all measure, transcendent splendor or endless blessing? You're gonna be like option two all day. But you have to realize option two has to do with being willing to suffer with Christ. Write this down. Keep it in front of your eyes. Hide it in your heart so you might not sin against God. Somebody needs to write this down. Momentary suffering is greater than momentary sinful pleasure. Every time, all day, Moses chose to suffer. He chose to look beyond fleeting pleasure of sin to the great reward that God had for him, both here in the earth and in heaven. Will you choose to indulge the fleeting pleasure, be it porn, be it alcohol, be it drugs, be it lying, be it gambling, be it much wine, be it sneaking around, be it gossiping, fantasizing, be it taking that office friendship too far, or will you choose to suffer with Christ? Will you choose shame or glory? Will you choose this moment of pleasure or eternity? Will you choose the easy pleasure or the harder road of the cross? Will you choose immediate or will you choose ultimate? Will you choose to keep your eyes on faith's great reward? When you are tempted to sin, when some fleeting pleasure comes knocking on your doorstep, what if you, like Moses, took a moment to wonder, to wonder, to look with wonder on the ultimate? What if you took a moment to look with wonder on the ultimate? Like, yeah, that girl's drop dead gorgeous. Yeah, that guy pays more attention to me than my husband does at home. Yeah, that feels really good. Yeah, this is going to be really fun. But what if you took a moment and you, all those immediate yeahs that are right there in front of you, the immediate yeahs, what if you shifted your focus from those immediate yeah to the ultimate, to faith's great reward? What if you set your heart and you set your eyes by faith. This takes a lot of faith. But what if you add your name to Hebrews 11? By faith, Sarah. By faith, Matt. By faith, Annie. By faith, Jana. By faith, Brady. What if you, by faith, set your eyes to see faith's great reward? You gotta use your faith to see it. What if you, by faith, set your heart to see the beautiful thing that you can build through long obedience? What if you set your eyes by faith to see the beautiful thing you can build by the steady progression of small God-honoring choices? What if you, by faith, set your eyes to look with wonder on those small God-honoring choices, looking at them as stones laid end to end, by faith, seeing this pleasing path stretching into eternity? What if you set your eyes by faith to see at the end of that path, Abba. Abba there with welcoming arms. What if you set your eyes to see that path leading to eternity unto Abba's welcoming voice saying, well done, faith. That's faith's great reward. Yes. 
What if you set your eyes by faith to see it? It's so much better than anything Egypt has to offer. By faith, set your eyes to see it. Well done, faithful. Well done, faithful. In April of 1939, some of those confessing church pastors that had signed the oath to be loyal to Christ and Christ alone, they reneged to avoid losing their careers, their status, their lives. They took an oath of allegiance to the fewer. Bonhoeffer was so discouraged, he was depressed, looking at all the compromise around him. He left Germany for New York City, like why should he stay? What could one man do? But once he got to America, he realized he wasn't gonna be able to settle there. His convictions were too strong. He would not shrink back, so he went back to Germany. He knew he had to fight for the gospel, to fight against the compromise that was happening in the German church. And in a letter to a friend, he wrote, I made a mistake coming to America. I must live through this difficult period of our national history with the Christian people of Germany. I will have no right to participation in the the reconstruction of Christian life in Germany after the war if I don't share the trials of this time with my people. Listen to his convictions. Like really think about this. Could Could you do this? Like place your name, your country in this. Christians in Germany will face the terrible alternative of either willing the defeat of their nation in order that Christian civilization may survive or willing the victory of their nation and thereby destroying civilization. I know which of these alternatives I must choose. He was a man of compromise. He returned home, a decision that cost him his life. He was imprisoned in 1943 for his participation in a plot to kill Hitler pastor, prophet, martyr, spy. On April 9th, 1945, he was executed at Flossenburg concentration camp a few weeks before the camp was liberated. His last words at age 39 were, this is the end for me, the beginning of life. It's the beginning of life. Bonhoeffer, like Moses, had his eyes on the ultimate. He knew He was about to step into faith's great reward. The sound of Abba, welcome, well done, faithful. It looked like the end, but for him, he knew death was just the beginning. God is calling us to be a people of conviction. New Song Church, a people of conviction, convinced that faith's great reward is better than anything that this world has to offer. If you would stand to your feet, and close your eyes. I believe that the Holy Spirit has some things he wants to say to all of us today. So I want you to just ask him, like Holy Spirit, what are you saying to me? Give him permission to search your heart. Nothing hidden. Are there any areas of compromise in my life, God? Holy Spirit, would you come and shine light in the dark corners of our hearts where we've compromised? Are there any places we've compromised for status? Are there any places we've compromised for fleeting pleasure? 
as he reveals those places to you, your next step is to repent. To repent and say, God, I'm sorry. I've compromised. I'm sorry, I see it. Like Bonhoeffer who said, I made a mistake when I went to America. Just be real honest. God, I made a mistake when I took that promotion. I made a mistake when I said yes to that proposal. I made a mistake when I pledged that sorority. I made a mistake when I chose to sit at that lunch table. Just tell him where you've made a mistake. His mercies are new every morning. Ah, oh, his mercy's so thick in here. His mercies endure forever. Thank you, God, for your mercy. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for your forgiveness. Thank you for your love. I'm gonna invite our altar ministry team to come forward and I wanna invite you to do something today, to act on the message. I wanna invite you to suffer with Christ. That whatever he revealed in your heart, that area of compromise, that you've repented, that there's another level of freedom and healing he wants you to walk into, but you're gonna have to suffer with Christ and you're gonna have to come and you're gonna have to confess your sin. And that's not fun. In the, in the moment, but when it's over, you're like, you know what, that's not so bad. I feel free. I feel healing beginning in my heart. So I wanna invite you to do that today as we go back into worship. And if, if, if you want prayer for anything, maybe it doesn't have to do with the message, but you have something going on in your health, you wanna pray about a job, something like that, whatever it is, if it matters to you, it matters to God. But I encourage you, don't just hear a message don't just say, no, I'm good, I got it, I took care of it, me and the Lord, we're good, we're good. Let's follow the scripture. Scripture says we gotta confess our sins to a brother or a sister in Christ. Maybe it's not up here at the altar ministry, maybe it's your spouse right next to you in your seat or your best friend sitting there and you're just, you just wanna confess, here's where I've compromised and I'm turning and I'm thankful for God's mercy and his forgiveness. And if that's not you, you don't need prayer, you don't need to confess, we're gonna go back in, in, into worship here for just a moment. I asked Pastor David to, to share this song so that as we sing this chorus over and over again about how there's nothing better, I believe that there's some faith that's gonna rise in this moment. Maybe you walked in here and you hadn't even thought about faith's great reward and now you're like, oh, I'm interested. I want you to leave convinced that faith's great reward is better than anything that this life has to offer. So just let faith rise. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. So sing these songs out. I believe he's sealing this word. He's increasing faith in this room and he's convincing hearts of the great reward. Thank you, Lord, for your presence. Holy Spirit, I pray you draw every person in need of prayer to the altars in Jesus' name. Thanks for listening to this week's message from New Song Church. If you have a prayer need or would like more information about New Song, you can email info at newsongpeople.com. If you would like to partner with New Song through giving, go to www.newsongpeople.com forward slash give. And if you want to stay connected to New Song, you can find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter by searching for New Song People.